which we're just finalizing and which will be coming out through San Francisco's Dark Entries probably next year. Now, by around August of that year, I had started to see another guy hanging around on the street, kind of in a way, the same way that I used to see Kenny Compton uh, at the clubs and stuff. And, you know, we were checking each other out. We found out we were eating at the same places for breakfast. And uh, this turned out to be this guy named June Mizumachi, Japanese music engineer, recording engineer, and musician, creator himself, and uh, who was working up at a place called the Music House up in Midtown. I started to go up and do sessions with him, just me and him. He had an incredible machine up there that he had access to called the Synclavier. Synclavier allowed you, it's not only polyphonic, you could use these pretty great samples that it had already built in. You know, it just was a whole nother world of sound and so easy to use and, well, I can say that now, but there was probably only about five in the whole city at the time. And uh, luckily, uh, I was able to get my hands on, on one of them. And uh, maybe e almost every weekend, I would try to go up, and me and June would get together and record some stuff. Uh, I was just trying out ideas in the post Ikeyard mode. In September of the year, we had done a thing at Danceteria where it was Ikeyard and Cabaret Voltaire's Double Vision, the release of that product. Ikeyard had fired Ken Compton from the group. He hadn't come to a rehearsal. We just were getting pretty bitchy about everything. Everybody was a little restless. Factory didn't get back to us to make another album. We're kind of like, kind of muddling around a little bit, I would say. Same time, the rest of the world was rushing forward, moving ahead. And I think it just made some stress, certainly on myself, and I know with Fred as well, where we were like, well, you know, what are we doing, you know? And so in that case, for example, me and Fred Szymanski did a couple shows together at the Pyramid Club, basically experimenting and trying new things, a little more core electronic oriented. September 22nd, Factory Album came out. Ikeyard was still hoping to do our first show overseas. There was talk about doing a show in Italy. Didn't come together. We were still trying those things. By October, it was the last Ikeyard show. By then, we had integrated June into the group, and we did a show at the Pyramid where Going beyond the Factory album, we just decided to go even a little more kind of anonymous, electronic, and we made a set of songs or tracks. The titles were just colors. As I remember, it was in that set we did red, magenta, blue, gray, yellow, and black. So we did that set. We were pretty excited because the group had kind of turned into another sound. You know, we were kind of making do as best we could. We didn't know at the time that really Ikeyard per se was already gone and over. But we did continue. After we had done the show at New Order in 1982, 
you know, we were pretty hopeful that we were going to have video footage and, and have something to commemorate the whole thing, even just to commemorate our experience with factory records. We heard our footage ended up on the cutting room floor. We never saw any of it. And actually, just a couple years ago, somebody from Factory America sent us uh, the live recordings of the show with New Order. And that was great and fun. But at the time, I think we were a little bit disillusioned and maybe some of us were a little pissed off. I know I was. We had to leave the space that we had worked at, at the music building. The lease was up. Our guitar player and synth player, Michael Diekman, was asked to try out for a group called The Swans. It's Mike Jira's next group. Fred and I continued making some beats at his place on St. Mark's Place. Continued working with June up at the music house. Eventually, Michael and Fred started to come up to the music house too. And we all joined in, the three of us together, uh, four of us, I guess, you know, just trying to make some new stuff because we had new sounds. Out of all that, then we got to the beginning of 1983. 1983 will turn to be a kind of a seminal year because it was towards the end of Ikeyard, the very end of Ikeyard. But it was also a time when you could start to go to people's home studios and do very high quality recordings and productions. I guess looking at it now, we could say it was the beginning of a mode where, as it used to be, you had to be on a record label to do a record you couldn't really afford to go into a recording studio and do a record, so the label kind of had you. You know, as Prince characterized it later, the master-slave relationship. You know, the labels were kind of up in the clouds. You didn't really have so much contact with them. You're trying to figure out how to get to them. But the great thing was you could really get in and for $25 an hour or so, you could make your new productions. It was pretty important to me because during that year, I started to do my own first solo things in the studio, and uh, that was very exciting. And uh, as I remember, the studio I worked at on uh, West 26th Street, it was Mr. Stephen Breck's uh, Synthy Studios. He had, at the beginning, he had an A-Track, later on he had an ADAT, all kinds of samplers. Later on he had different sound modules. He also kept up with the tech. That was very helpful to me. Stephen had been a recording engineer for years, and he had previously worked with the Fat Boys and also Curtis Blow on his early releases. For him, having Stuart and Michael come in and Fred come in and do different things was a bit of a new mode, but he was a smart, quick guy, and he was really a big help, often as the engineers have been uh, for, for Ikeyard and for myself through the years. Like us go back to the context again, because not only was there the, the old guard, sometimes you would see them out at the clubs or you would run into them, there was kind of a change there between the influence of Andy Warhol to the influence of William Burroughs. And when Patti Smith announced from the stage one night that William Burroughs was coming back to the U.S. for the first time in 25 years, something like that, I think that that turned over a whole leaf, same way that, you know, Genesis Peorge crew and industrial music crew in the, in the UK were signaling a new thing turning as well. It's kind of a very important time in New York because William Burroughs, such a hardcore New Yorker, and he had his place down on the Bowery called The Bunker at that time. He didn't even know that he could write again, 
but he got such a great response from audiences in New York when he started to read. And there was a thing called the Nova Convention where he was readings and you know, kind of public performances. So he really read up his whole energy and I think it was kind of marvelous because as a young kid, I was reading William Burroughs and kind of mind was blown. I didn't love every part about it, but in terms of literature, it was really a new thing. And it kind of went very well with kind of the very picturesque things that I liked from the German artists. And then William Burroughs and a little bit later J.G. Ballard's a little harder aged, transgressive, in the case of Ballard, a hard science, pornography, broken glass, all of that stuff all put together. All of that got recombinated into the desolation of New York at the present day. New York blues, jazz of Miles Davis, Ornette Coleman, Albert Eiler, Sun Ra, all of that, all conglomerated, had already conglomerated itself into the sound of Ike Yard, but now it was going to spew itself back out again in the different projects that we did. Before I could get very far though, I got stabbed in these village. Now we've gone from the New York that I knew when I moved to New York in 78 to the New York that it was still becoming. In these years, I guess it was probably 78 through 82 or 84, maybe this was the biggest set of cultural ideas put forth by a pretty small group of people in one city, and I'll go out on a limb and say maybe ever because here you had everybody from the old guard, as I've mentioned, to what was becoming a new guard, which included, let's say, for example, in the filmmaking world, you had the first movies by Catherine Bigelow. You had the first showings by Jean-Michel Basquiat. You had this woman called Madonna. You had this character at the pyramid called RuPaul. And you had underground women directors Beyond Catherine Bigelow, even further underground, you had people like Beth B. Now still, there was traces of the influence of the old guard. For example, by the time I did the record Dominatrix, my manager at the time, Joel Weber, ended up hooking up Dominatrix's promo to be done by one Jane Friedman. Jane Friedman, daughter of a pretty famous showbiz person in New York City, but she had been part of the Wartoke organization. One thing among many, they, I think she was managing Patti Smith at some point. So there were a couple routes from the old days, but I have to say we blew past industrial, we blew past William Burroughs, television, DNA, all of that, um, because we were primarily electronic by that point, and we were thinking about the electronic future. I think digital was just a word that we may have read here or there, but it was not a digital society yet. Toward the end there of Ike Yard, it's very interesting because we had done a show at Danceteria, and there at the show was Mr. Graham Ravel of the infamous group SPK, Surgical Penis Clinic from Australia. They had come to town, had played right around the same time we did at Danceteria, and they ended up crashing at my pad on 11th Street between A and B. I had moved into a building that was kind of a squat building. The landlord had invited everybody to move in there and pay rent. 
Only later did we find out that he didn't even own the building and he was just taking the money and, and uh, putting it in his pocket. So we all kind of soldiered on and survived, but SPK was there and they uh, came and crashed out at our place, argued and eventually broke up while at my place. And, uh, it was kind of sad to see, but at the same time, the, you know, things were made and things were broken during those times. And uh, it's just kind of, uh, just kind of how things went. Beginning of 1983, I found myself preparing to do a show at the Pyramid Club with Ms. Noyuri Tokiwa. And she wanted to do a performance around the kind of famous Japanese story, kind of a legend about a uh, ghost or spirit that comes back, I think, for one day. And I signed on to do the music for that. And so we started rehearsing and working. That's I find myself in January working on that. January 20th, there was a fire in my building. Came back from a show at the Pyramid and to firemen, hoses snaking through the building, water pouring from the upper floors, and our building had gotten set on fire by the neighborhood drug dealers. That was kind of a drag. The Futons, any tapes I had left of the Futons were there, and when the firemen bulled open my one door to get in to whatever, air out the place or whatever, they they basically left the apartment open and the kids from the street came in and my stuff was all rifled through and uh, just kind of to the wind. And I remember that night having to call Noyuri and say, Noyuri, can I stay at your place tonight? Because I don't think it's safe to stay at my place. And so this kind of led into a whole new confluence of friends. I was together with Noyuri for some time. Noyuri was a part of a whole wave of Japanese people who had come to New York during that time and I'd always been partial to Japanese since I'd been a little kid. I had a friend in elementary school we used to draw pictures together and John Tagami's father brought us down to Washington DC to the Biograph Theater to see 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, just made a sweet spot in my brain for, for the Japanese. Noyuri was, was a very nice person, very sweet. She took care of me during that time. We did the performance. We were happy because we could get paid at the Pyramid Club. Pyramid on Avenue A was kind of our front room, I guess, in a way. We could try out ideas. Ike Yard was doing those uh, kind of duo shows there and so forth and so on. Eventually, after Ike Yard and, bef and uh, after Dominatrix, I would do what was the first performance for the next group, Death Comet Crew, also there at the Pyramid. Me and Noyuri did the captured animal performance. With some luck, we might be able to get her to chime in on her experience of, of doing that. So Noyuri, I'm looking at my date book, 1983, and the entry for December 29 says captured animal, a central rehearsal, from six to nine. So what were we doing for the captured animal? Maybe you can explain to the audience. Uh, captured animal is a 
my version of the Hagoromo is actually a famous uh, title of the No Theater. Hagoromo means the heavenly robe of an angel, the angel coming from uh, heaven. Usually, Hagoromo played at the January 1st at the No Theater. That's why I like to pick up that the theme for the 1983 January 1st at the Pyramid. Great. And uh, for me, what was kind of cool was I hadn't been asked to do really any soundtracks yet or collaborate with too many different people. Ike Yard's music was only known by dozens of people, including yourself. It was kind of fun for me to take a chance and to do a show with someone else. And as I remember, I was playing some keyboard, maybe electric piano, and maybe one synthesizer I borrowed. Maybe we rehearsed a couple times. Main focus was you wearing the outfit I think that you made. Yes. You know, what was it? 20, 30 minute performance of the... I think so. Hagoromo? Hagoromo. Yeah, so it's, it's like, uh, you know, my version of Hagoromo is like almost like a you know, man, kind of man fell to the earth by David Boy. Angel from the heaven came from the space, outer space, then, uh, you know, captured in uh, electric cage. The angel wearing like some nice heavenly robe, which I made by uh, transparent organzy. And then, uh, so that the Hagoromo robe, heavenly robe, was took by some guy or whatever. So without that costume, I cannot go back to space. But not taken by me. I wasn't so sure, but yeah, maybe you are more like kind of playing music. So mainly I was acting by myself, like almost like a kind of pantomime. I got influenced from the David Boy, so it's kind of pantomime inside of the cage, and I I try to go out of the cage, but I cannot go out, and then I was singing, something like that. What What were you singing? That I don't remember so much, but some kind of, you know, like a little bit sad, silent voice, you know. Like, I like to go back to the space, but I cannot go back, or something. Yes, I don't remember so well, but something, yeah. Do you think you did it in Japanese? Hmm, maybe, or some kind of space language, or something like that. Now, Noyuri, one thing I really liked about hearing your whole story of your, why you came to New York, and your first trip to New York, and leading to your second trip to New York, when I started to know you, was being in Japan and being into style and fashion, clothing, design, making things, you were first thinking to go to London, and then you ended up having a chance to come to New York. Yes. So kind of tell me a couple of the things that happened during that first trip to New York. Like, like, like what did you check out and what made an impression on you? Uh, I came first time New York is 1979, July and August. And so I spent one month in uh, New York. And then uh, actually I didn't go to the East Village or, you know, Mad Club that time. I didn't know anything about that. But I could have made uh, Club Hara and Zenon. 
Then I could see the Klaus Nomi. Klaus Nomi, the performance I saw two times. That really made me to, oh, I have to come back to New York. That really impacted me. And I saw Devo at the Palladium, also maybe Laurie Anderson. Also, at the, I went to the club for dance, maybe Hara or Zenon. Then uh, B-52's music was uh, really, you know, playing many times. So that, that really impacted me too. So like what's interesting to me is that Klaus Nomi, his first show in New York was the New Wave Vaudeville show that we covered in the Future History of Backyard number two, the Rewind Years. Also interesting to notice that he was playing at the Xenon, which a place that I never went to or played at, but I guess was more of like a disco. I guess, yeah. As you mentioned, the B-52s, I can remember going to the first show, B-52s, first show in New York at the Mud Club, and everybody was there and the whole impact. And I think I've heard you describe before being on a dance floor where they go through the song and it's doing a certain part or everybody's dancing. Yeah, down, 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 down. Yeah. Ding, 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 right. type thing. And, uh, you know, you started to get a feeling of like how, how it was to be out in New York. And uh, um, fascinating to me is that uh, during this time that Noyuri came, there was a, a couple other Japanese that I'd already met. For example, the Seiji Nagai had opened what became really his first shop under the name Dept, the department yeah, vin store. Yeah, vintage clothes store. The vintage clothes store in East Village, where Ikue Mori of DNA uh, worked. Also Edvige, another character, a denizen of the, of the nightclub age during that time. Meeting Seiji and, and the people around that club, around his store, there was a certain vibe because there was a vibe in the clubs, there was a vibe at the record stores, there was vibes then at a little shop just off of, I guess it must have been 7th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. Yes. Across from what used to be a Polish yeah. food place was there. Yes, uh, maybe Kiev. Kiev, exactly. Kiev is 6th Street, I guess, but uh, yeah. The Sage is a store on 7th Street. And I, I think Kia was across and the 103 was 6th yeah, Street. Yeah, 103 was 6th Street, yes. Now, the, the place 103 uh, yeah. is notable because that was owned, at least in part, by Mr. Yagi, who became kind of father of uh, many Japanese shops. Uh, and in, restaurants. And restaurants yes. in the East Village, still to this day, 2019. Yes. Not only did Michael Diekman of Ike Yard's girlfriend, Leslie, work at 103. Yes. Yeah, many people I found at 103, including people who did vocals on 1987 Hip Tech High Lit with William Gibson, Bruce Sterling, so forth and so on. It was a place where we always went after the club. So like, you know, you go and have breakfast at like, you know, four in the morning at 103 and everybody from the clubs is there. So there was such a social scene at that time. And it was starting to get sprinkled with the Japanese who were coming in. So like, I then met Noyuri at a party that my friend Seiji had at his friend Chris's place. By the fall of 83, after I'd gone to West Berlin and come back, I was asked to produce a group called Megalomania, which included Mr. Shinichi Shimakawa, who became one of my main music collaborators for decades afterwards, including for 
Death Count Crew in 1984 and Black Rain by 1988-89, still through to the present day. At Yard, before we finished, we decided to do a fashion show down at the club called Stillven, which later became El Teddy's down in Tribeca. At the time, I was going out with someone who was working with Anna Winter at New York Magazine, Melanie, and Melanie, in a way, had experience that was in a later movie of being the assistant of Anna Winter and dealing with her, but that meant that she had access to all these new Japanese designers. So to me, it was just incredible because we had, through June Kanai, I think it was, was the person in charge, we had access to the Issei Miyake, Comme des Garçons, Batsu, Kansai Yamamoto, and we had all of them in this fashion show, Ike Yard doing a live music to that. We might have been in a little bit over our heads, but it was our night. We didn't care. We're going to do what we want. Also, on that night, from the building that Noyuri would eventually move into, there was the artist Yamamoto. There was Padre Sato, who was a fantastic illustrator who did the artwork for the invitation to that show, or I guess maybe the program to that show. One story I like from you, Noyuri, is your story about coming the first time to New York and eventually ending up at the Soho Music Studio. Uh, it's on the Green, yeah, it's on the Green Street. It's uh, some kind of a very interesting metal door. I think maybe still there. It's, you open the metal door, then going downstairs. It's a music studio. That time, 1979 summer, I came with a Japanese photographer, Mr. Aimi. It's, he was a specialist to take a photo of the jazz musician in New York City. He invited us to go to that some party of the jazz musician, kind of a Japanese jazz musician who was in New York City. That was kind of great to see everybody smoking a big joint I never see like that and then uh, yeah I had a very uh, New York experience there had been a whole slew of clubs from before including Studio 54 and so forth. I was really going to CBGB's, The Roxy, Funhouse, Lucky Strike, and Danceteria. Spring of that year there was a birthday party at Danceteria with the group De Hout from West Berlin. I was still working with June Mizumachi up at the Music House. March 1st we made some compositions that we output, and I was very proud of those. It kind of was leading to a new direction, I thought. But yes, then I got stabbed in East Village. That made me want to leave the city. Through my friends there, kind of extension of my, of my West Berlin buddy, Mark Fisher from the Futons, I moved to West Berlin, took a flight to Frankfurt, made our way across to West Berlin. Dogs are barking at the, at the gate into West Berlin whole kind of historical scenario. The train kind of came around a bend. Actually, I'm looking at my dates right now. It says April 28th. On that day, somehow, as we the train came around the bend, there was a, a march, like, I don't know, I guess it was a communist march, like 
through the streets of the city. I think it might have been Leipzig. You know how it is when you're on a train, you're, you're coming across a view. It's like, there it is, it's coming up, it's coming up. There's right in your center view, and boom, 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 then it's out. And it was just like, I was like, oh boy, this is, this is something a little different. And it certainly was, because living in West Berlin turned out to be kind of a incredible timing. Thanks to my friends from the Futens. I already knew Gudrun Gut from Malaria and had met all the members as they had played in New York and there was a whole kind of a German wave scene coming through New York. I ended up working with a lot of them, living with a lot of them. It just was an incredible creative period. We ended up working with people from Eisters and Neubauten, living with members of Malaria, living with Chris Haas from Liaisons Dangerous, previously of DAF. All of those were just really great formative more into the electronic mode and it was a it was great to be out of the city and with new friends and hanging out and uh, you know doing all kinds of things that you do during the nighttime it was just a wonderful kind of not a break almost like an amping up of my whole thing really so living in west berlin from spring until late in August of 1983. A lot of fun, met a lot of people, began writing a demo for what would become a song called The Dominatrix Sleeps Tonight. Came back to New York, pretty excited, pretty stoked up. Went to see Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence by Nagasa Oshima the next day. Kind of plunged back into the scene. By then, after doing some more tracks by myself and so forth, I was confident in the studio and kind of became, I guess I was moving toward being a producer by that point. Michael Diekman was working on some tracks himself, and he had about four or five tracks that, uh, that he worked on. Some of them, I did some programming on them with him. We went back to Cynthia Studios again and recorded them. He made the project Ocean's Eleven. It was never released, but uncannily enough, at this very moment, at Red Bull Arts on West 18th Street in Manhattan, they're playing one of the tracks, Unprotected, as part of the Gresson Bender retrospective, similar to Ikeyard, unknown group at one point, known group at another point, maybe maybe Michael Diekman's Ocean's Eleven will, be, um, will come out to the world and everyone can hear those tracks too and they can hear the connection to Ikeyard, and they can also hear kind of what we are kind of playing around with for some next things. Perhaps inspired by the Factory album finally seeing the light of day, I had begun focusing some of my creative energy into developing a solo project based upon the sound of Ikeyard from the first half of 1982 having bought a Roland TR-606 drum machine and a TR-303 programmable bass synth to add to my ARP, my plan was to continue building upon the minimalist aesthetic approach defined by the Factory album. In December 1982, I had recorded the first solo tracks at my home studio using a dual cassette recorder in conjunction with a quarter-inch reel-to-reel recorder so that I could do some simple multi-tracking. The first song, an instrumental, Inca, was followed by a dub version of the track, 
called Inca II. And before the end of the year, I started working on a song with a vocal track, a cover of Tim Buckley's Strange Feeling. This may seem odd at the time, but besides being influenced by Ian Curtis of Joy Division, I wanted to look back at some of the singer-songwriters that had a powerful effect upon me in the 1970s prior to punk. That song came from Buckley's 1969 album, Goodbye and Hello. And looking back, I recently read that the song was apparently influenced by Miles Davis. Using the TR-606 and TR-303, I programmed a rhythm track that was the basis of the arrangement. And definitely a tip of the hat to Joy Division. I've got this strange, strange, strange feeling Fred and June, this new project, initially named File 10, became the focus of my musical direction into 1983. I immediately started writing my own songs using the stripped-down approach of a direct continuation of the post-Ikeyard aesthetic, and I wrote and recorded several more songs in the first half of 1983, even finalizing the mix of Strange Feeling in June. And when Stewart returned to New York from Berlin in November 1983, I played him a couple of demos of the latest songs I'd written, and he was supportive of the project. He recommended that we record an eight-track version of two of these songs at Synthy Studios with engineer Steve Breck. By then, the project name had changed to Ocean's Eleven, using the title of an obscure 60s film which I had no idea would be rebooted as a successful remake brand at the beginning of this millennium. Although none of File 10 slash Ocean 11 songs were released on record, in 1984, one of the songs, When Our Worlds Collide, was included on a mixtape with a few of Stewart's recordings that he gave to video artist Gretchen Bender as possible source material. That track was included in her video installation, Wild Dead, which was featured recently in a career-spanning exhibition of her work at the Red Bull Arts Center in New York. And MoMA has now purchased the installation and is likely to be exhibited there later this year. As the summer of 1983 approached, another musical path became evident. I started discussing the possibility of forming a band with singer-songwriter Miranda Stanton. 
who had released two singles under the moniker Thick Pigeon on Crepuscule, including Subway, which Fred Szymanski from Ike Yard had done the drum programming. She lived with Michael Schamberg of Rand Factory America, and we had met back in 1981 when Ike Yard first started working with Michael, who had produced the Ukrainian National Concert in November 81 with New Order and Ike Yard. Miranda would play bass and me guitar, but we needed a drummer, and Miranda reached out to Ikawe Mori, who had been the drummer of DNA. I'd seen DNA a few times, starting with Robin Crutchfield back in 78 at Max's, and then a few times with Tim Wright on bass. She had an amazing style, totally her own. Initially, Miranda brought in the powerhouse guitarist, Sue Hanel, who had just left the Swans, but before long, she was onto something else. So then Miranda contacted Stephen Vitello, a talented guitarist and bass player, and we began rehearsing, trying out some of Miranda's songs as well as some that I had written for the File 10 Ocean's 11 project. We named the group Clay. We rehearsed through the summer, and then on August 31st, we recorded a three-song demo at a rehearsal space with David Sparks Engineering on a four-track cassette recorder. Stephen and I on guitars, Miranda on bass, Ikaway on drums. The music was more post-punk than no wave, although the guitars wailed over Ikaway's rapid drum pulses. Clearly, on an opposite pole from File 10's chilled electronic coded messages from another space and time, Clay was snarling and heated. looking for something more experimental and less song structured. At that point, we reached out to Alexa Hillman, a drummer who may have been influenced by her then boyfriend, Roly Moseman, who later played with the Swans, and after that, Jim Fetus. Alexa's style was powerful but sparser than Ikaway's, adding space to the song's structures. By then, Miranda began adding some of her songs to the set list. At the end of 1983, Clay was starting to book some gigs. I ended up meeting through another group called Megalomania. I ended up meeting Mr. Shinichi Shimokawa. Now, Shinichi became an important man for myself, too, because like Michael Diekman, he became a member of the next group that I did, Death Comet Crew, by the early 1984. I produced Megalomania, did a track called uh, Monkey Rap, <laughs> did some oddball things, but I could see the Shin was talented, you know, producer and guitar player, bass player, keyboard player himself. We got along well, kind of set the tone for the next time to come because 
not only were it with Dickman and Shimokawa in Death Comet Crew, but then Shinichi Shimokawa was the first person I went to when I formed Black Ring by 1988-89. You start to get an idea of like the landscape ahead following 1983. And maybe to cap off 1983, I would say that, again, I take up the thread of being able to record at new places and in different modes. What that led to was being able to do art soundtracks uh, with Gretchen Bender and with Robert Longo to where those projects, not only are some of them now being restaged now, uh, some of them are lost classics as well. Probably toward the end of that, there was Johnny Mnemonic, the film by Robert Longo by 1995, which Black Rain scored, kind of was a, you know, another level reach there in terms of soundtracks and things. So 1983, very important, very influential to myself. The end of Ike Yard, beginning of Dominatrix, uh, beginning of Death Comet Crew. Uh, what had happened was uh, the Dominatrix record would become such a big hit and played all the time. When I went out, I ended up kind of getting sick of it and then wanted to kind of turn the page and get into some new music. And so I started to think about putting together a crew. Wasn't re- I didn't really care if it was going to be a group or what, but wanted to get together a group of people that I could just play with and jam. But this time it was going to be around this new music coming from Harlem. It was called Hip Hop. me to say some MC rhyme, so I said this rhyme I'm about to say, the rhyme was there for then it went this way, took a test to become an MC, and Orange Cliff became amazed at me, so Larry put me inside, the gap to lack, the stripper drove off and we never came back, they cut the record down to the bone, and now they got me rocking on the microphone, and then we talking autographs, and tears and laughs, champagne, caviar, and bubble bath, you see, uh, that's the life uh, that I lead, and you sucker MC, Because there's nothing in the world that run the level like a cold chill at a party in the B-Boy stands And rock on the mic and make the girls wanna dance Fly like a dove and come from up above I'm rocking on the mic because they run love I got a big long cat and I like a Seville And written right on the side and read just to kill So if you see me cruising girls Cooling out, girl, take the two in death places One of a kind, and for your people's delight And for your sucker MC 